So, first of all, the way we treat each other is rooted in two unions. One union is vertical, up and down. Does anybody remember what that one was? Between us and a figure of the Trinity. That's right. Union with Christ. You put Romans 6.5 on that. And then the other one is horizontal on the plane that we live in. Anyone remember what that union is? Shout it out. That's right. We're united with one another. As we've been united with Christ, then that also unites us with one another. And so with that union, that makes us like a family. We see that in the Bible frequently. We are called brothers and sisters in Christ. And we all know that saying about family. You can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. And likewise with the faith. We don't choose who does or does not get saved. God does. And we know that he saves us while we are still sinners who need to be sanctified. In other words, we are not perfect. We are all works in progress. We come into the faith without understanding of how we should treat one another. And if we don't learn, then we won't treat each other as well as we should. We'll just treat each other according to our worldly habits. But if we do learn to obey the one another commands, then we will treat each other well, and the body will grow as God intended. So that brings us to our one another commands that we have covered so far. First one is love one another. Above all else, we are called to love one another. If we have not love, we are nothing, 1 Corinthians 13. And this love comes from knowing and experiencing God's love. As we grow in our love for God, we will grow in our love for one another. Our next was exhort one another. We all grow tired in the faith. We become weary, discouraged, ready to quit. We may become tempted to believe lies of our hearts. We may become tempted to believe lies or have hearts that become cold and calloused to the truth. In those times, we need the exhortations of a brother to help propel us in the path that we know we need to take. Even if we know the right thing to do, we are far less likely to do it if we are not being spurred on or seeing examples of it in the body. That means we need to surround ourselves with good people who exhort us and spur us on. And we need to also come to our fellow believers ready to take opportunities to exhort one another. And closely related to exhort one another is comfort one another. The different nuance is that it is related to lifting someone up who is not only discouraged or weak, but is in pain, suffering, going through a trial. We ought to learn from our trials and rejoice in them, because it is by our trials that we become equipped to comfort those who go through similar trials after us. Christ comforts us in our trials, and we then comfort our brothers and sisters with the comfort that we ourselves received. So like we said with exhort one another, Come to the church with the aim to comfort those who are suffering. Learn to be astute at reading people and drawing them out. Be intentional, proactive. We're ready to take the opportunity to comfort and capitalize on it for the kingdom. So those are the first three one another's we covered. And today we are going to learn about serving one another. So Peter tells us in 1 Peter that we are supposed to use our gifts to serve one another. 1 Peter 4.10 and that is something that a lot of you are doing really well. If you didn't know, last spring, Clay did a topical series on spiritual gifts. He talked about what they were and how to utilize them for the benefit of the entire body. If you haven't heard that series, it is very helpful to see biblically what the spiritual gifts are and how you can apply your own gifts that you've been given. And if you're already utilizing your gifts in the church, you may be thinking, 
I don't need another lesson on serving. I'm already using my gifts. I'm already being faithful. I've been equipped. And you probably are being faithful in your area of service. Praise God for that. But I'd also like you to consider some scenarios with me. Have you ever seen your roommate's dirty dishes in the sink and thought, I'm too busy to deal with that. They don't have as much responsibility as me, so they can do it later. Maybe you're back home on break. You enjoyed a nice home-cooked meal with your family. Then you make your way back to the room, open the laptop, and pull up your favorite show on Netflix. You haven't been able to watch it the whole semester, so you're excited to get back into it. You get cozy in your bed, you put your headphones on, and you hit play. Ten minutes into an episode, you're laughing at the jokes, drawn into the drama of the story, feel like you're practically catching up with old friends. And then your sibling interrupts you to ask you to help them wash the dishes from dinner. What is your reflex? Do you spring out of bed, ready to serve with humble joy? Or do you become upset, thinking to yourself, don't they know that I've been working hard all semester? How can they ask me to do dishes while I'm on my break? Or if you're stressed about a final exam that you have to get a good grade on to get an A in the class? You've been working hard all semester, and even then, you've been barely able to keep your grade where you want it. And so as the final approaches, you are stressed. Time to get to work. So you go to the library, you walk in, then you see your friend who has been lazy all semester and might not pass the class. He sees you, and you see hope come to what were once frantic eyes. Oh man, I was hoping I'd see you tonight. Can you help me with some of these concepts? Serving him may cost you an A in the class, but it may cost him retaking the class if you don't serve him. So what do you do? What is more important to you in that moment? Who is more important to you in that moment? We can keep going. Maybe you see some trash on the ground. Do you pick it up, or do you leave it to somebody else who is better to do that? Or maybe you are on a group project. Someone isn't doing their work. Do you pick up the slack joyfully? Do you see it as an opportunity to bless somebody else? Or are you upset that your workload has been increased? Do you rejoice at these opportunities? Or are you frustrated? Do you delight in the chance to bless others? Or do you become upset when you are inconvenienced? You get the idea. We may come to church. We get plugged in. We find formal opportunities to serve. And we think everything is great. We're serving. We're serving the body. But when we are faced with chances to serve informally, we often don't want to. And we often don't want to because we are focused on ourselves, our own rest, our own productivity, you name it. We become so focused on ourselves that we not only forget to serve others, we become upset and rebel and grumble in our hearts when we are forced to. So you can probably see now as important as formal serving is, our service is supposed to go beyond that. It is supposed to be a reflex in the informal day-to-day opportunities that face us every single day. And this type of service is what was modeled by Christ our King. And he is calling us to imitate him in it. So let's see what the scriptures say about what our service should look like. We see that first of all, it is modeled by Christ. You can turn to John 13. John 13, starting at verse 1. This will be our anchor text today. Uh, We'll flip around to some others, but for the most part, we'll stay here. So in John 13, Jesus is 
in Jerusalem with his disciples for the Passover feast. It is the last meal he shares with his 12 closest disciples before he is crucified. Jesus knows he is about to be crucified, and in this chapter, we see that he does something remarkable. He serves the disciples in a particularly lowly and humble way. He washes their feet. And John tells us in this passage later, or Jesus tells us in this passage later, that we are supposed to follow his example. So let's walk through the passage and see what we can learn about service from Christ. First of all, we see that Christ served with love. Verse 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus did not serve these men without love. His love characterized his service to them. He was driven to serve them by his love. He knew them after doing ministry for three years, and he knew all of their flaws and all of their mistakes. Yet he was not repelled by their imperfections. He was drawn to the disciples despite them. And this love characterized Jesus' entire ministry. He loved those who were his own in the world, and he loved them to the end. And notice that phrase, to the end. We see that Jesus' love was steadfast. He loved from beginning to end. His love did not waver, even as he approached his crucifixion. He was going to be crucified within the next 24 hours, and he knew that. And even then, he was focused on loving his own. But us, we can't seem to love others when we have a big deadline a week out. We get distracted so quickly from loving one another. But not Jesus. His love is steadfast. Not only that, but Jesus' service was extremely humble. And he served with humble initiative. We see this in verses 2 through 5, John 13. So during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God, and was going back to God, he rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. So verse 2 emphasizes that Jesus already knew that Judas was going to betray him. Not only that, but verse 3 emphasizes that Jesus is eternal God. He is keenly aware of that. He knew that he was from the Father and was going back to the Father. The Father had given him all things. Who else can say that? Who else can claim what Christ can claim in that moment? And Christ got up from dinner and washed dirty, stinky feet of lowly men. Normally this task was done by the lowest person in the household of the host. But who was hosting? They were using the upper room of the man that Jesus prophesied about in Luke. In Luke 22, 7, 13. But that man wasn't there. It was only the disciples and Jesus. So there's no host. There's no servant. There is no one to wash their feet. And none of the disciples jumped to take this lowly task. But then their master and teacher did the unthinkable. He did the duty of a slave for them. The high and exalted one who had received all things from God took on the position of a slave of his own initiative. Paul wrote about this in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. You can turn there now. Paul captures the magnitude of Christ's humility so well here. That was Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Absolutely amazing. 
So let's read it together. Starting at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Wow. Though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not capitalize on it for his own benefit. He did not cash in all the perks of being God himself. Instead, he gave them up to take on the form of a role and a slave. Take on the form of a slave. And he did this to serve us, his creatures, who rebelled against him. And not only by washing feet, but by giving his very life for lowly, sinful people as we are. It's amazing. And this didn't happen by mistake. This was his purpose from the beginning. As Jesus himself said, that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew 20, 28. And this service is reflected in all of Christ's ministry. He served the blind, children, prostitutes, the demon-possessed, the lepers, the lame, the infirm, and many more. You name it. Christ didn't move away from these people. He moved toward them and served. He even served Judas, who was going to betray him. What great humility. Christ did not come to be served, but to serve. He came of his own initiative to lay his life down by giving his life on the cross and by serving all along the way. So that is the love and humility that we see in Jesus. But we also see that he had faith in his service. You can turn back to John 13 now. Remember verse 2? Jesus knew that he was going back to the Father. He had his mind set on the goodness of God as he was serving the disciples. And he also knew that he was going to be exalted for a sacrifice. Hebrews 12.2 and Philippians 2.9-11. Jesus had experienced heaven... And he knew and believed that to be great in the kingdom of heaven, you had to be the least of all. Matthew 20, 25 through 28. Not only that, Jesus believed that it was more blessed to give than to receive. Acts 20, 35. Because Jesus knew and believed the truth, he served. His understanding of the truth is what directed and fueled his service. Jesus' understanding is what guided and motivated him to leave his eternal dwelling with the Father, perfect communion, perfect worship and praise, perfect everything. And he left it all to be born in the farm and a farm animal's food trough, all to bear the weaknesses and infirmities of mankind, to serve sinners who have no idea who he is, and then even give his life for them. And amidst all that, he still took the time to wash stinky feet right before he died. And as a side note, is that the last thing that you want to do before you die? To serve others by doing the most gross, lowly task that everyone else is too prideful to do? Well, that's what Christ did. And he did that because he was motivated by faith. So we see Jesus served with love, humility, and faith. But he also served with forgiveness. So Jesus had been washing the disciples' feet, and then he gets to Peter. So we can look at verse 6 of John 13. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. 
Peter was shocked at Jesus washing his feet. He couldn't fathom why his master would serve him in such a way. So he refused his Lord. But Jesus then gently says, you don't understand right now, but later you will understand what I'm doing. And Peter refuses him again. He says, you shall never wash my feet. Peter refused the service of Christ. One commentator said here that it should be noted the difference between the earthly perspective and the eternal perspective. Peter could not wrap his mind around what was happening. But Christ had a purpose. Let's jump back into the text at verse 8. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter then said, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. Jesus explained to Peter that if Peter did not receive his service, then Peter had no share with Christ. So obviously, Peter responds, Wash it all. I want to be with you. I want to be saved. I want the inheritance as promised. Jesus then explains that the disciples already are clean, and they just need their feet cleaned. That is to say, they have already been saved. Their sins have already been washed away. But Jesus wants to make it clear that to be his disciple, they have to humble themselves and receive lowly service from the Lord. We take salvation, the gospel, for granted. But there should be something in us that is amazed and feels entirely unworthy of salvation. That Christ would stoop so low should be too good to be true in our eyes. So that we would almost react like Peter, seeing how magnificent and wonderful and unheard of that somebody so high would stoop so low to serve us. And sometimes that feeling, it makes us think that we don't or shouldn't receive such a gift, even though it is offered freely. Imagine if the president of LU said that he wanted to take you for a ride in his personal car, or that the football coach wanted to fly you out to one of the out-of-state games. We would be tempted to think, I'm not worthy of that. And in those times, we are so focused on our unworthiness that we receive the gift. Christ does not want us to refuse him like that. If you are tempted to think that your sins are too great for Christ to forgive you, you need to see that Christ is the only way, and he is willing to serve you and forgive you, and his gift is entirely free. You can receive it. He gave his life so that you may be forgiven. Though he is high, and you are a sinner soiled with the muck of this world, he lowered himself even lower than you, even lower than myself, and by taking your death penalty upon himself so that we could be forgiven. It's amazing. Christ requires that we receive his humble service to us if we are to be a Christian. It's the only way that we can share in his salvation. And if you're feeling hung up on your own worthiness, you can remember 1 Timothy 1. Paul shares that he is the worst, the chief of sinners. But Christ saved him to be an example to all of us. That if Christ can save Paul, who persecuted the church, killed unbelievers, opposed Christ himself, and then save someone like that and use him to write significant portions of the New Testament, then he can save you, no matter what sins you've done. So that's the service of Christ. It's full of love, humility, faith, and forgiveness. And then Christ commands us to imitate him in this. We look at John 13, 12 
through 17. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So Jesus sat down after washing the disciples' feet and explained what he had done. He emphasizes that he served them as their teacher and Lord. He was above them. Jesus is greater than the disciples, yet he washed their feet. And so if Jesus was able to stoop so low as to wash our feet, then surely we can wash one another's feet. If we are keeping with the stooping low analogies, Jesus went from the top rim of the Grand Canyon and stooped to the lowest point. I looked it up, and that's a difference of roughly 8,000 feet. So you can think that that's how low Jesus went. And now he's asking us to stoop to the floor, maybe five feet. So Jesus did 8,000, and then we'll say 8,000 times in infinity, since he is infinite God, and then compare that to our five feet that he asked us to do. Jesus has served us so well that there is no service now that is beyond what we can do. No matter what position we attain to, no matter how high we are perceived by ourselves or by others, we are still slaves to Christ who have received unspeakable mercy. And at the end of our lives, when we give an account of the good we have done, all we can say is we are unworthy servants, for we have only done what was our duty. Luke 17.10 What is amazing, though, is that though we deserve nothing for our service, Christ says that we will be blessed if we do these things. John 13.17 As we learn to serve like Christ, Christ promises that blessings will come. And that is the command Christ calls us to. Serve as a slave because he, our master, served us. So that's a weighty command, right? How do we live this out? Well, first, you can do so by cultivating humility. To serve Christ and others as a lowly slave requires humility. We have to cultivate this humility. And we do that by knowing Christ. If you know Jesus well, we see his humility his trust in the Father, his love, his forgiveness, not only in John 13, but all of Scripture. We're praying to him and worshiping him in light of all these things regularly. Then our hearts will be well positioned to be excellent servers. This is what you're meditating on and delighting on through your time with the Lord. And it's what you meditate on and chew on throughout the day. Then you will be motivated to serve. So then also, a massive hindrance to our service is a poor understanding or weak communion with Christ. So I encourage you to take John 13 and Philippians 2 specifically and study them this week. Engrave on your heart the image of Christ the Almighty stooping down to the role of a slave to his church. Likewise, if so much hinges on our communion with Christ, a great hindrance to our service will be anything that gets in the way of our communion. And in fact, if you flip over to Luke 10, 38 through 42, that's Luke 10, 38 through 42, you can turn there now, you can see as we turn there that we can even serve so much that we miss our communion with Christ. And if that happens, we are missing the point that Jesus wants to teach us. So let's read this passage together. 
Luke 10, 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. She went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Do you see what happened to Martha? She was serving, likely with good intention, but at the same time, the attributes we saw in Christ weren't there. She was anxious and troubled. She was not trusting God and his promises. Her mind was not full of the truth. She did not have faith at that time. She was not humble before Christ, or she was not loving to her sister. She was making demands of both of them. Not only that, you can almost hear in her tone the resentment she had against Mary. Though Mary had done nothing wrong, Martha perceived there was a wrong, and she was holding that against Mary rather than forgiving her. It seems that Martha was focused on herself rather than on God and those around her. And those nuances aren't even the main point of this passage. The main point is to, not, to teach us that we should not get so distracted with serving that we miss the chance to sit before Jesus' feet to commune with him. And so if we do end up doing that, we need to know that even our service will not look like Christ's service. We can't fabricate this. There are times to act in obedience, maybe when we don't feel like it. But even that obedience must flow from communion with Christ. So we see that our communion with Christ is to be primary to our service. Having a clear vision of him and his teaching is the foundation. We don't just need to know about Christ, however. We need to be reminded of the obvious. Don't exalt yourself. You can turn now to Matthew 20, 28. That's Matthew 20, 28. This passage is one of those passages that almost makes you laugh. And then you get a little bit worried because you know it's supposed to draw out sin within your own heart. So let's give it a look. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him, that's Jesus, with her sons. And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. He said to her, what do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. Okay, so the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with their mom, and they asked for the right and left-hand positions for Christ. These guys want to be Jesus' top dogs. They think they're the best men for the job. So because of that, they exalt themselves. They're angling for positions of power, authority, greatness, and leadership, whatever you want to call it. They're trying to get to the top position for themselves. And of course, when the other disciples hear it, they're a little bit upset. We don't know what they were thinking, but this pride was causing division amongst the dozen. And Jesus steps in and turns it into a teaching moment. He rebukes them for how they had been thinking about leadership and authority through the lens of the world. Jesus says that's not how leadership works in the kingdom. 
Listen to verse 26. He says, It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Wow. Jesus really gave them a new paradigm. He said that greatness comes from being a slave. Greatness comes from serving others. Greatness comes from lowering yourself rather than exalting yourself. This is the type of greatness that Jesus experienced. He humbled himself, and because of that, he was exalted, as we saw in Philippians 2. So when you feel your pride drawing you to seek your own greatness, know that it is in that time that your ego is lying to you. And you have to remind yourself the truth that true greatness comes from laying down your life in service to others, not from seeking your own glory. Greatness comes from lowering yourself, not exalting. Paul helps us see this humility in his letter to Philippians. He wrote, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Philippians 2, 3-4. Verse 3 is worth serious meditation. As John Piper says, it is a dynamite verse. A key step to serving others is seeing them as more important than we are. We like to think that we are the most important people in the universe, but we're not. We're supposed to consider everyone else more important. And as we adopt that lens, we're supposed to learn to look out for their own needs and their own interests. As we see their needs and we start meeting them, regardless of whether or not they ask, or even know that they even have those needs. So rather than being selfish and exalting yourself, consider others more important, and then act on that and serve them. So let's camp out at this verse a little bit here. Let's imagine that hypothetically, your roommate leaves their dishes in the sink again. You think about cleaning it up, but you think, they have more time than me, they should do it. Or maybe my responsibilities are more important. I shouldn't take my precious time to do their job. Do you see that self-importance in there? When we start to make those excuses in our minds to not serve, we need to ask ourselves, who is more important? And if we say, I think I am, then we really need to examine our hearts and ask why we're thinking that. We are all the Lord's sheep. We are all cared for by Christ. Who are any of us to think that we are better than another. We cannot, we must not. We are called to see each other as more important than ourselves. And if you really want to put your ego to death, don't just take responsive service opportunities like the dishes in the sink. Don't wait for your roommate to do something to serve them. Instead, ask them if you can make them or buy them dinner, and then you clean everything up for them. Or you see that friend struggling in class that we mentioned earlier, Take initiative long before finals week and try to help them before the end of the semester. If you're at home on break, seek to help your family with the dishes or any other house projects before they even have a chance to ask you. See, themselves, see others as more important and take initiative in your service as Christ did. This will kill your pride, bless others, and honor Christ. But we're not out of the woods on pride yet. Sometimes we even serve out of pride. And we have to look out for that. You can turn to Matthew 6, 2 through 4. That is Matthew 6, 2 through 4. Here Jesus warns about doing good things to be seen and praised by men. 
starting at verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Rather than using our acts of service to exalt ourselves, we are to conceal them. But we are so tempted to exalt ourselves, aren't we? Let's say you help that friend in the library. You finish teaching them that concept, and then, like Jesus said, um, sound no trumpet before you, Sometimes, metaphorically, we pull out our beagle and go, attention everyone, I just did a good deed. Isn't that great? You can line up for autographs and shoulder pats right here. Obviously, that'd be crazy. But that is what our hearts crave. To combat that desire, that idolatry of ourselves, we must serve the Lord ultimately in our service and not serve man. If we don't, we will capitulate to the praise of man. Because as you serve, people will begin to think well of you. They will start praising you. They will like you. But if that's our motivation for serving, that's the only reward that we will get. We are not supposed to settle for such vain and worthless praises. Rather, we are to give, or in this case, serve in secret, so that it is clear that we are motivated only by our loving Father. When we serve, we don't serve out of the fear of man. We don't serve for the praises of man. Rather, we serve out of the fear of God. And when we serve that way, we won't mind serving behind the scenes where no one sees. In fact, we will grow to love these times because that is when we know the Father sees us and we will receive a reward. So here's where we have to ask ourselves about why we are drawn to public service opportunities. Do you pick up trash when no one's looking? or only when that cute girl is walking by? When you're at home, do you serve your family or roommates when they're gone and in ways that they won't notice, or only when they're around to see you? Do you seek the ministry opportunities on campus that get the spotlight, like CGL, RA, or RS, or are you content to do the same ministry to people at your church without the same recognition or spotlight? Or even at church, do you want the ministry that gets you in front of others, are you willing to be a cleanup crew that nobody sees, that stays late when everyone's tired? Or do you just want to do the easy job that people see and gets you the quick pat on the back? And on the vein of reward, Jesus tells us that whatever we do to a fellow Christian, it's as if we do it to Christ himself, Matthew twenty-five forty. So when you serve one another, Christ sees that as serving him. It's an amazing opportunity we have, isn't it? We get to serve Jesus himself by serving one another. But the reverse is if we fail to serve others, we fail to serve Christ. And that is serious. Jesus judged people, and he used their failure to serve fellow believers as evidence that indicted them and condemned them to hell. So we see this as serious business. We need to serve one another. So whether we are serving a dear brother or the person who seems to drive you crazy, remember, look past that, and you are serving Christ. However you serve, You want to serve with excellence because you're serving your blessed king. So whether it's in the spotlight or in the back, let excellence be your aim for Christ. And tying all of that back to cultivating humility, the 
the more we serve others, the more humble we become. And we become all the more humble when we serve those who are hard to serve and when we do the tasks that we don't desire to do. And even more than that, if you practice serving when no one is watching, then even then you'll become all the more humble. And that humility in turn will grow you in your love of serving others. And this humble servant-hearted growth will continue. So we see that serving one another is rooted in Christ, and it requires humility. We have to see ourselves as slaves, and we have to see others as more important. And we have got to keep our eyes on the eternal reward that Christ has given for us, or promised for us. And what is amazing is to look at this church, and to see people serving, and to hear stories of people serving all the time. Many of you are already getting after it and serving greatly in ways I'm sure most of us don't even know or see. So keep at it. The Lord sees it, and he will reward you. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word that raises the standard for us to learn to serve and to lay our lives down for one another, to not see ourselves as high or exalted, but to see ourselves as lowly servants. I ask you to work in our hearts to teach us humility by your word. Captivate us with the example of Christ. Help us learn to serve one another, Father. We love you and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.